And now it's time, dear listeners, for the final chapter of CMO Convo's Story Masters with Gaston Torn. All good endings are emotional, so it's apt that we close things out by looking at how storytellers throughout history connect emotionally with their audiences, and how you too can do the same with your marketing. Pathos, logos, catharsis. Discover these powerful tools and more in this episode. Hi, Gaston. How are you doing today? Very good. Yeah, very excited for our fourth chapter um, on Story Masters. Yes, yeah, and it's a, it's a good one to be talking about as well. I think it's sort of like the climaxes. We are going to be talking about climaxes as part of this um, in our discussion about catharsis. But we're going to be talking about some of the main building blocks of how people have tried to connect with audiences emotionally. Um, pathos, ethos, logos, and catharsis. All from Aristotle, some from Aristotle's rhetoric, some from Aristotle's poetics, but it's all stuff that's been used for over, well over 1500, well over 2000 years even, by people trying to persuade people to do things. So obviously, we should be paying attention to these ideas when it comes to uh, storytelling and marketing. Yes, completely. And I think, especially it's quite an interesting um, topic today, because we're going to be talking a lot about emotions and how important is emotion in storytelling? Um, and I think particularly when it comes to any kind of, um, I wouldn't say just advertising, like just in general, any kind of discourse, I think you need to pay a lot of attention to, to the emotional side of um, your argument. Um, I think um, it was very clear already from Aristotle, as you said, um, that any good argument needs to combine both logos and um, emotion pathways, right? I think it's really important that you also consider um, that emotional side. I feel like we know since probably like um, since probably like elementary school, like primary school, um, you already know that sometimes you know the kids that get the best grades are not necessarily the ones that like study the most, uh, but are the ones who usually tend to be very persuasive in their speech. Um, and I remember like some people like would think that that's actually the reason why maybe education is not necessarily a reflection on, on how people, um, you know, how much people know, how much people study, but actually it's a reflection of how we work um, in general as a human beings. I think because it's not necessarily the content um, that sometimes we pay attention to, it's more the way that it's delivered and particularly the emotions that are conveyed through any message. Um, so the emotional side of storytelling, it's incredibly important because as human beings, we communicate not just through rational arguments. It's also the emotions that are, in a way, expressed um, around those arguments. I feel like particularly in Western culture as well, like the way things are developed, emotional, being open with your emotions and having emotional advertising and content has become more popular. I think it's just the way society is moving. Um, we're, all, we're a lot more open with our emotions so we expect to be emotionally engaged with our with our content and our advertising as well um so let's uh let's talk like start at the top with these terms pathos it's probably something people have heard about um because it's a very very famous term when it comes to literature but what how would you define pathos in storytelling gaston yeah i think pathos is is it's actually quite interesting when you think about what it means, um, like, you know, the kind of original meaning. Um, 
I think it, it was always around um, evoking some level of pity or sadness, uh, which I think, of course, it evolved uh, as, a, as a concept. Nowadays, it doesn't mean necessarily that. It means like um, just in general, like emotions or feelings. But I think like there's a reason why, for example, being pathetic um, has a lot to do with that sense, like that kind of like sense of like pity or sadness. I think in general, like pathos is like, you know, as, as we discussed just briefly before, it, it's all related to emotions, feelings, more, I would say the qualitative side or like the um, subjective side of any kind of argument. It's it's more like where you connect to it um, as a human being, what kind of like emotional reaction, you know, that argument has on you um, or like that message has on you. Um, I think as he, as he said, there's kind of like, now I think a trend um, in most markets and most countries to prioritize emotional advertising over perhaps the rational, more functional advertising that, you know, was prevalent before. Um, but I think it's important to always consider that communication needs a balance between logos and pathos. Um, and I think that's something that already Aristotle mentioned, like in the, in the poetics, like he said, like, you know, any communication, any kind of um, message needs to have that balance between a clear, rational, logical argument and an emotional component um, next to it. But I think it's important not to forget about the logical, clear argument, which I think sometimes marketing nowadays can, um, can almost like, you know, overbalance on the emotional side. So when I think about storytelling, I don't think necessarily just emotions. I think for me, storytelling means persuasion. For me, storytelling means being um, persuasive in your communication, in your message. But I think in order to be persuasive, you need to have a very clear, solid argument, which is it starts with logos. It starts with actually making sure like your argument makes sense and it doesn't have any loopholes. And I think if you're promising something, your product needs to actually deliver it. Like I think like all those things that are like the basics, let's not forget about it. Because if not, I think you end up being pathetic, right? Which is like kind of like what, what pathos does if, if you don't have logos next to it. And I think we have seen terrible examples of this, right? Um, Theranos, like just a recent one, right? Mm, yeah, great one. Incredible when it comes to like emotional storytelling, like this idea of like saving the world, like one, you know, drop of blood at a time and like whatever else it was. Uh, it was emotionally, it resonated, but from a logical point of view, the product didn't deliver. Um, and I think like in the end, that's going to, um, of course, it's, it's going to fail. Um, so it's important to use emotions um, but don't forget about the rational argument because both should go um, in parallel. And I feel like both are important in order to persuade. In the in the end, what you're trying to do is persuade people. Uh, people have emotions, but they are also rational um, human beings. It's not like, you know, we are purely rational and emotional or like purely rational. And I would say, actually, most emotions are also quite rational. Like the fact that you see something that is clear and something that is uh, makes sense makes you feel that you trust that brand um so so yes i would say be emotional but don't overuse it because at the same time um don't forget that like pathos in itself without logos it's going to make your brand feel pathetic it, it, it's what well, you get bathos when you have those kinds of situations bathos it's 
the, the opposite of pathos. It's when pathos goes too far and it's too emotional and it becomes ridiculous. And you can see that a lot when people switch off when they're watching certain, um, when things just get too extreme and emotional. I know lots of people, if a charity advert comes on or something, they'll roll their eyes or they'll groan or they'll change the channel or something because they just think it's so overwrought with the emotion. Of course, charities do deal with very emotional subjects as well, but you have to keep that in mind when you're doing any kind of emotion. If you take it to too extreme, it becomes it becomes ridiculous. Um, it has to be presented in a way that's relatable to people. The people have to understand why that emotion is being shown on screen at that time, why that story has certain emotional beats. It has to come from a place of reality. Like if people are just randomly bursting out laughing and being happy and smiling, that's kind of creepy. And on the opposite direction, if someone stubs their toe and starts tearing out their hair and wailing at the sky you think you're just being ridiculous and you're overreacting so you've got to walk sort of a fine line with emotion especially when you're trying to reach a large audience and you're trying to have as many people as possible empathizing with what's what stories you're telling so it is definitely a fine line to to walk um let's let's talk about logos actually i realize we haven't um defined that term um you, you see it as like the, the rational side of the argument gaston do you want to exp expand on that a little bit more yeah, so I mean, um, logos. Um, if you go back again to like um, what it means, um, I think in in Greek, um, logos is is related to logic or, or reason. Um, I think like when we say that something is logical, like that term logical comes from logos, which is like all related to reason and 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 the way that we um, process ideas or arguments. And I think for um, particularly for like um, Greek philosophers, there were like two main kind of like um, types of rational arguments. One was inductive. The other one was deductive. Uh, I'm not going to go into the details of that, but like usually most of our rational thinking um, follows those kind of patterns. It's either like you did use something because you have some premises or based on like multiple cases, you then kind of like induce what's the, the general conclusion. But there are like definitely some logical ways of thinking that um, as human beings, sometimes we don't follow because, of course, there's a lot of like cognitive bias and like, you know, shortcuts. But usually those logical arguments make you uh, feel um, more inclined to trust or believe in a message. Um, so I think it's, it's really important that you follow some of those steps. Um, I would say in, in advertising, the most common use case of logos is making sure that whenever you have a promise or particularly like I think in marketing it's a brand promise that you can actually deliver on it. Um, whenever it comes to brand identities and brand work, the first thing I do as a, as a CMO is check what are the reasons to believe in this brand promise? Um, reasons to believe is like a very kind of like um, overused term in marketing, but I think it's, it's a really, really important one. I feel like always check what are your RTVs? Like, can you actually deliver on what you're promising? Um, because if your promise is over here and like really high up, and then actually what your product delivers is very different or is like just, you know, 10% of what you're promising, of course, you're going to be breaking that trust immediately with your customer. Um, and I think it's it's not going to make any sense. Um, again, the word making sense uh, is, is related to logos again. Um, so I think like it's making sure that your argument um, 
And in this case, of course, it's like your marketing promises and your communication um, stays true to what you can deliver. Um, and it actually makes sense. And I think if not, um, at some point, reality is going to catch up. Um, I think we have seen this with many brands quite recently, especially like when there is a crisis, economic crisis or recession, like reality catches up with you. Um, and I think you don't want to be the next Theranos. You don't want to be the next SPX. And I think like all of those cases um, are just related to brands that didn't really look into um, the rational foundation of what they were building. For sure, for sure. Um, I mean, we, we've talked about this concept in a bit more detail in a previous episode um, when we talk about brand purposes. And yeah, it's, it is a little ridiculous. You see some of like, the promises that brands make out there based on what their products are putting out. And it, it's that lack of consistency. Again, um, it's a term we've used quite a few times on the show. And if your messaging and your positioning doesn't match with the results that you're actually producing for your customers, then you just look ridiculous again. Um, you're over-promising and yeah, it's going to blow up in your face at some point. But the uh, the Logos doesn't have to be spelled out explicitly to people, I think. It can be almost sort of like a subliminal messaging behind it. Like the purpose of your story and your argument and your persuasion doesn't have to be in the text. It can be subliminal to it. A good example of this, to my mind, is um, Mark Antony's speech in Julius Caesar, Friends, Romans, Countrymen. At no point does he say, Let's go fuck up Brutus. He's keeping it all under that under the um under the radar. It's all subliminal. And he's praising um Brutus, he's praising the conspirators. So there are ways of using logos and thinking about what's the logical progression of your argument without having it spelled out to people um right uh, right out there. And there's loads of examples of this in advertising. Like in fact, probably the very basis of our advertising is having these kind of like subliminal messages underneath these stories. That's the way that we've done it for hundreds of years now. Completely, yes. I think one of the most important lessons I took away from um, actually the poetics from, from Aristotle um, is that in order to be persuasive, you need to have a clear argument, but you never, never explain your premises. You just give the conclusion. Because what happens is like when you share the conclusion of your argument, rather than sharing all the premises, the person who is on the other side tries to understand what are the premises that actually led to that conclusion. And when they find out what are the, those premises, they feel smart. They feel like, oh, I get you. This is why you're saying this. And if you show like the whole kind of like reasoning, if you start, well, this is my premise A, this is my premise B, and then this is why, you know, I'm concluding X, it just becomes boring and it becomes a bit like, you know, that kind of like school teacher that we all remember that, you know, it was not that fun to have an interaction with. Um, so I think it's really important to have a clear argument, a logical argument, but don't use it um, in your communications straight away. I think it's more like that's the iceberg that you need to build, but in your advertising, you only show the tip of the iceberg. And I think usually that tip of the iceberg is the conclusion. Just to give you one example of like an amazing advert, um, it's an advert from Spotify that I love. Um, they did it for, um, I think it was for St. Valentine's Day. Um, and the advert was something around like, um, dear person who listened to the song, um, I'm sorry, 
um, 45 times during St. Valentine's Day, <laughs> what do you do, right? Um, that adverts the conclusion of a few premises, right? Like, of course, first of all, they check, like, what, you know, what kind of songs people were listening to during St. Valentine's Day. Of course, like, listening to I Am Sorry means, like, you probably did something wrong, like, during St. Valentine's Day. <laughs> But they're not explaining all those premises. They just go into the conclusion. And when you watch the advert, like immediately, again, going back to that, you know, um, insight I shared from Aristotle, because you start inferring those kind of premises, you feel smart. You're like, oh, God, actually, what they're trying to tell me here is like, you know, this guy or like this girl did something wrong because like they said, um, you know, they listened to I Am Sorry on St. Valentine's Day. But like you kind of like, connect the dots. And I think that makes you feel smart about understanding that message. Um, so going back to your point, I think Logos is important. It doesn't mean that you need to communicate that externally. It's more like for your own foundations, your reasons to believe are really important. Like make sure that you note them down, you're clear about it. But then in your marketing communications, which is a different, um, I think, part of your um, you know, Marcom's kind of like strategy, I would recommend you only communicate the tip of the iceberg because the tip of the iceberg creates intrigue, but then secondly, also makes the reader or your audience feel smart because they can actually connect the dots. And, and they can almost self-insert themselves into the story if you leave those kinds of gaps there. Like um, the example with the Spotify one is a great example. It, 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 it pushes people to think about, oh, what maybe have I done in the past that would lead to this kind of situation like oh what would lead to me having to listen to I'm sorry for uh, 45 times or however many it was so it, it, it brings the audience into the stories that you're telling and I think that's a really powerful thing because it makes them invested in the outcome at the end of the day um, so we've got pathos we've got logos let's talk about ethos and how that fits in so ethos it's about building trust and that is one of the fundamental principles of marketing. But how do you see it's applied in sort of like rhetoric and persuasion, Gaston? Yes, I think it is really interesting because it's it's a term that we use quite a lot in advertising and marketing. So probably pathos and logos like less so. So maybe they're like a few like there are concepts that are a bit like new maybe to to the audience. But I think I'm sure like if it's like you have used it, like if it, and if you haven't used it, I'm sure like one of your agencies probably use it when they you know they were pitching something. Um, I think when you go back to it, it's like it's more around like not necessarily like ethics, um, but it's more around like the personality, the attitudes, like how you kind of convey a personality. Um, and I think like that's important because. In a way, the, the the kind of best way to build trust is usually by having a consistent, clear um, manifestation of your personality through attitudes and, and aspirations. And um, I think like habits as well is really important. So I think like the interesting thing about Ifas is like, it, it's kind of like ethics, but um, in action. Um, it's not necessarily just your beliefs. It's really more around your attitudes and how you act based on your moral beliefs. Um, and I think it's really important because that's the way that, you know, you build trust. Um, I think we discussed like a few, two different kind of um, ways to do this. I think the first one is making sure that you don't overpromise. Um, and, you know, what, like, I think like all of us, we know in our professional lives that if you overpromise and underdeliver, 
your career is not going to go too far. Well, it's the same as a brand. Like, why why would you overpromise under the deliver? It's just not a great strategy. It's not going to build your ethos. Like, it's not going to build that trust on you. Um, but still, I think I would say a lot of marketing is really about overpromising under delivery, which also makes our industry have not the best reputation outside of our industry. Like, if you go outside of a marketing um, community or circle, like, and you say like oh, that sounds like marketing, it's not something that is positive. It means like you're over-promising, most likely, or you're lying, which is even worse. Um, and I think we're responsible for that. Like, we are building the reputation of our own industry. Um, and I think it's important as marketeers, like, we understand that there are no gains, like, literally, not even short-term gains on um, over-promising because you're going to be found out like very quickly. And, and I think like the impact is going to be way worse. Um, and, and again, like it's the same as like in your professional career, like it takes a long time to be a reputation, but it's very easy to just completely destroy it. Um, so you don't want to do the same with your brand uh, because once you lose that trust and that reputation, it can fall down very quickly. Um, and as I like, we have seen like recent examples that were like just, you know, clearly um, over-promising or they were not using um, the kind of um, values that they, they stood for, like actually in their in their actions. Um, and it's going to be impossible for them now to um, recover the trust, right? Like if we, if we look at like organizations like quite recently FDS, right? Um, completely lost trust. And I think even worse, I think like those kind of episodes make the whole industry uh, question, for example, if crypto is something that we should even be, um, you know, accepting as a society, because it looks like there's a lot of fraud in that industry. Um, so, so yeah, I would say <clears throat> ethos is all around making sure that your personality has clear moral values, but then most importantly, that kind of set of values is communicated through your habits, attitudes, behaviors. Yeah. And when I say attitudes, behaviors, I'm emphasizing that because it's not just words. It's actually what you do. Um, and I think especially brands get this wrong. Nowadays, with a lot of like different kind of um, moments that are important, like, um, you know, Black History Month, um, Pride Month, you can see a lot of brands doing performative um support um during during just weeks and it's not going to get them very far because i think usually um not just those communities but also outside of, of of those communities like people can realize very quickly when it's just performative um and there's not a real um commitment um to to really stand for those values oh i mean um taking a fairly recent example of that in action is possibly a lot of the controversy around the Qatar World Cup, um, a lot of brands who purport to um, to um, uphold inclusive inclusive values that um, they do Pride Month, they are openly saying that they are accepting of LGBTQ people, but then they go off and sponsor loads of stuff in Qatar where you can give you stoned to death for having for being that kind of person. So it's. Yeah, it's it's tough, and especially now in the age of social media, it's very very easy for people to find out what your company gets up to, what your brands get up to, um, besides what you present to them. 
So you have to be very, very careful of what everything's going on in, in the back. And even in even in departments that you don't necessarily have control over as a CMO, you need to be keeping an eye on things and making sure you're being consistent with your messaging and your branding and the, the values that you are putting out there. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like closer to, to the UK and the US and like markets that we um, operate in, I, I feel like on a daily basis as well, like um, it's it's quite interesting to see a lot of brands supporting, for example, the LGBTQ plus community during Pride Month. But then when it comes to actually supporting it, for example, for um, trans rights, which are like, you know, not great um, in the UK or the US, um, you don't see those brands um, standing up for, for those um, like communities that are equally important. And I think um, usually a lot of these brands like take decisions based on like perhaps financial opportunity. Um, and I think like consumers are, are going to realize that very quickly. Um, and I think particularly like if, if you support the LGBTQ plus community during Pride Month, um, just make sure like you're, you're, you do your due diligence. And especially when you're a big brand, check that like, hey, are we actually donating any money to like perhaps politicians that are not really um, standing up for that? And I, I appreciate like in big companies, it's tricky because there are like so many departments, so many teams like, um, and you might not have full visibility, but I would say as a marketing team, don't go out there with a message unless you feel that actually is authentic and um, you can stand for it because it's not just ethical um, from an ethos perspective, which is this idea of like having a clear set of values that are conveyed through actions. If you don't do that, you're going to harm your brand trust and it's going to affect you commercially. Um, so it's, it's not just a question of like, of course, first of all, it's, it's a question of being ethical, but I think secondly, uh, also from a commercial perspective, it's not going to go well. It, it, and it can take so much to rebuild that trust. I mean, you only have to look at how much the, um, the audience on Facebook has declined since the Cambridge Analytica scandal a few years ago. I think that's kind of what tipped, tipped things out of balance for Facebook as a brand, as a company. I mean, they had to rename the company to, to Meta to try and get rid of the bad stink um, at the end of the day. Or going back to the LGBTQ plus community, a company like Disney, right? That, yes, of course. Um, yeah. They have always apparently, um, you know, they, they start for like the LGBTQ plus community. But when it comes to like LGBTQ rights in a state like Florida, yeah. they didn't really stand up for it. Like it, it, it took them a while to actually make um, a clear statement on it. Um, and I mean, like, of course, the LGBTQ plus community noticed that. And I think like not just the LGBTQ plus, but like I think everyone who probably stands for liberal values um, should definitely uh, be concerned about those kind of like behaviors. For sure, for sure, yeah. Um, it's, re it's really tough to see when it's these kind of like beloved brands as well that you do have an emotional connection with. Like Disney is one of those brands where you grow up with Disney and then you grow up and then you realize that, oh, it's not all magic and sparkles and it's tough to get that magic back ever again. You'll never have that emotional connection with the brand again because it's it's been tarnished and ruined by its by poor actions. But moving on to the climax, catharsis. Let's talk about catharsis and emotional endings. So catharsis in the sense that Aristotle uses it is, is, as it was it like a form of cleansing at an end of a narrative. Like what, what did he mean by that, do you think, Gaston? Yeah, I think usually when it comes to um I think most creative expressions, and I think marketing is, is in itself like a creative expression, especially when you are like watching an advert or um, any other kind of like 
um, brand communication, there's always a buildup of emotions. I think as human beings, like when we interact with the story, you build up emotions. Um, and then at some point you need to release those emotions because if you don't release them, like it becomes actually almost painful, right? Like imagine like most films we watch, like if there's no ending to it, um, it's really, really hard um, as a human being to kind of like absorb that story. I would say even like, a really sad ending is better than no ending. I think like what people get really frustrated about is like when there's no ending, like it's like, oh, what happened? Like, I mean, there's no conclusion. I don't really understand because you build up all those emotions and then suddenly there's no catharsis, which is like this kind of like release of emotions. Um, there was actually a really interesting um, school of theater. I think it was um, it was actually from the Dada movement. And mm -hmm. that used to be like just very provocative. And they tried to do things that annoy people in a way. Um, and one thing they did, um, it was like theatrical plays without catharsis. So there would be like this buildup of emotions. Um, and then at some point, the play finished. <laughs> and like literally it was like, people used to get so upset with, with those plays. Like they would throw like stuff and it was like, come on, like, you cannot leave me hanging there. Like, but I feel like the reason was actually to make explicit how much like we depend on, on these kind of artificial devices um, to connect with a story. Um, and I think like catharsis is, is important because in a way, in most um, brand, brand communications, I think like you are, I wouldn't say manipulating, but you're using emotions um, to connect with your audience. And I think a big part of like using emotions, it, it also means that um, at some point you need to know how to relieve um, that uh, because it can become too intense. And I think um, you need to come to a resolution. It's almost like, you know, you, you can go through sadness and happiness, but at some point you need you need that kind of like moment of, of relief to go back to your everyday life, right? I feel like stories usually going back to like, one of the first concepts we discussed in this um, in, in this series, like this idea of like suspension of disbelief, right? Like you actually get so immersed into a story that you become very empathetic with the main character. And again, we're using the word empathetic, which connects back to pathos, like connects back to emotions. Um, but in order to go back to your everyday life again, in order to get out of that, like immersion, you need that moment of catharsis. Um, it's almost like what connects you back to your life outside of what you're watching or what you're reading. And, and it can be any kind of emotion as well with catharsis. It's not just like, oh, they've got tears building up, they get ready for an emotional climax along those lines. Like a joke can be like that. Like if, if you if you don't have a punchline at the end of a joke, if there's no actual like funny thing to it, you've got all this expectation built up and it sends you back the other way, not having the the punchline there. Like you get annoyed, you get pissed off. Like rather than being in that, oh, I'm getting ready for a joke, you're actually gone even further back the other direction. So that lack of resolution, that anti-climax can be very, very damaging to people. Like, well, people's relationship with the story or the brand. Like you, no one watches a movie that has a bad ending twice. I think they endings are how they, they are how you have like the emotional connection to a film like when you're walking out of the cinema when you're walking out of a theater or something you talk about like oh the ending was amazing the climax was great and that's why they load 
he- like heavy emotion into there to get that cathartic feeling. Um, they they always talk about like oh the big action filled climax or the the resolution of the story, and it's always a big emotional moment. Um, so yeah, they've been doing it for thousands of years this way. It makes sense for us to look at brand storytelling in the same way when it comes to the catharsis and it comes to the emotions. Like if you need that release, you need that connection resolved as well. Like you need an end of the story. Completely, yes. And I feel like sometimes you can decide to break some rules. And I think it's important that like any good storytelling, I think should consider how to break some rules. Um, but I think at the same time, it's important that um, you do consider them because I think the expectation is there. So if you're breaking that expectation, make sure that you're doing it consciously. Um, like the Dadas like did. And actually it didn't, it didn't go well for them. Like I think like <laughs> people actually understood that, you know, they were doing it purposely. I think there was a lot of, um, tension and like people didn't like it so i think it's important that you can break rules but be conscious that you're doing that be aware that you're doing that and make sure that um you have a clear reason for it um so i wouldn't like advise anyone to just follow rules i think like that's not what you should do but like be aware of them because if you're breaking them you need to have a clear reason for it yeah i mean across like these four episodes now i think we've we've banded down quite a lot of fairly high-minded literary terms. And it's, it is really just so that people become familiar with them, get a bit of an understanding of them. You don't have to use all the techniques that we've discussed in these episodes. You don't have to use all, follow all the rules that we've talked about. But by understanding them, you can find interesting ways to break them. Like, um, like you think about an artist like Picasso, for example. He learned to be an amazing painter, and then he learned how to not be an amazing painter anymore. So he could break those conventions and he could approach art in a different way. And it's the same with storytelling across the board. Like you can't really defy convention if you don't understand what those conventions are. Like achievements and ignorance are great, but they're not real achievements at the end of the day. Like you haven't actually thought about it or thought about how these things fit together and how to make it more effective. Like if you see a better way of doing storytelling than these rules, then you should definitely do it. But know what the rules are first. Really. Yes. I feel like um, there's a really interesting quote that says, like, the most beautiful part of any painting is the frame. Um, <laughs> and I think it's important to be aware of that. Um, but at the same time, I feel like the anarchist in me says, like, go and break the rules. But I feel like be aware of it, like be aware when you're breaking rules. And I feel like actually great creativity always tries to break some rules, but don't break all of them at once, because I think you're going to just become completely um it's going to be very hard for people to understand what you're doing um so there are expectations out there that's i think what you need to be aware of uh, as a storyteller people expect some things um break some of those expectations because that's going to um create some level of like intrigue but don't break all of them at the same time and make sure that um you have a clear reason um whenever you're not following one of those expectations for sure, for sure. So Gaston, we've reached the end of, of chapter four. It's been an absolute pleasure having, um, recording this series with you. Um, as I've said to you previously, this is one of my absolute favorite, to- well, two of my absolute favorite topics to talk about, storytelling and marketing. So can't do much better than that. So wrap things up, Gaston, I was thinking actually, um, maybe we could uh, go through a bit of like a quick reading list that you'd recommend to people. Of course, we've mentioned Aristotle's Poetics, but is there any, any other main books that you think people should take a look at? To improve the story. I, I love um it's called into the woods um 
It's by John York. John York um, was the screenwriter of Life on Mars. Um, it's a series um, that was very popular in the UK, I think, um, probably now, like almost two or three decades ago. But I think oh, it's been yes, <laughs> like, a long time. Like, he was the screenwriter of um, Life on Mars. And um, he has this book that is called Into the Woods. Um, and it's amazing. It's a book that is not for marketeers. It's a book for screenwriters. Um, but I think it has the most useful advice that I have ever read on storytelling. Um, really gives you a lot of principles. I think we discussed some of them in, in this series, but I think also gives you new concepts to think about. Um, so I would definitely recommend people to read Into the Woods. But then I would say my reading list would be fiction. Go and read a lot of amazing fiction. I think it's the best way to understand how stories work. Read amazing stories. And I think... Of course, as a Latin American, I would recommend a lot of uh, magical realism. Um, I love um, 100 Years of Solitude. It's such an amazing story. It is. A lot, of, a lot of stuff that we discussed today, actually. Um, this kind of balance between logos and pathos, I think, in 100 Years of Solitude, and, and not just in 100 Years of Solitude, in, in magical realism, is so well done because it goes, in, sometimes it goes like into really weird places like almost magical places but at the same time it's believable it's not something that doesn't have any logical um kind of a foundation behind it like sometimes like you know you'd be in 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 this town like in 100 years of solitude like my condo and it would start raining um for like many years and it would start raining even flowers rather than actual rain but like at no point you would be like oh my god that's unbelievable because the way that the writer um, immerses you into that world, into that story, the suspension of this belief, um, it's so good that um, you will never question uh, what's going on in the story. So magical realism is amazing. I think um, another novel that is actually defined as the anti-novel, um, so I really recommend reading it, is uh, Hopscotch by Julio Cortázar. Cortázar is, is my favorite. I'm from Argentina, and he's my favorite Argentinian writer. I know everyone knows Borges, but I think um, Cortázar is, is, in my opinion, like the best um, Argentinian writer. And I think like that particular novel, it's amazing going back to what we discussed today around rules. Um, he defined it as the anti-novel. Um, and it's a novel that tries to break the rules of um, what a novel should be like. The first thing, for example, like you cannot, you can read it in multiple ways, but you can also um, flip between chapters. You can start from oh, wow. like the, the end, go back to the beginning. So that idea of like, sequential reading of like the modern novel is for example not follow in hopscotch um but it's such a beautiful book and you can see how he breaks some rules but also he uses some of the rules in a very smart way to still be a really enjoyable reading um so yes i think like those would be my two favorite um novels or anti-novels that i would recommend everyone um to read now just from your side like if you have to recommend any any fiction or anything um, that you particularly enjoy. I'm actually reading some magical, well, I suppose it is magical realism um, from a Japanese author, um, Murakami. Um, I've read one of his books before, Norwegian Wood, and it's one of my favourite novels of all time. Uh, the one that I'm reading at the moment, Kafka on the Shore, it's a bit more into like the magical realism side than Norwegian Wood. And that's, yeah, it's really interesting seeing all these different layers of the story being told in these different ways. And 
different ways of the characters moving through the world and interacting with each other. Like the guy can talk to cats. I, I, I haven't found out yet why he why he can talk to cats, but the way he relates to the cats, the way he speaks to the cats, really, yeah, it really says a lot about like his place in society and the cat's place in Japanese society at the time it was written as well. So yeah, definitely recommend that if anyone's looking for um, some novels out there. But for just general storytelling though, I think you can't go wrong with Shakespeare at the end of the day. Like he has written some of the best, most persuasive language, persuasive sweet speeches ever written. So if you need inspiration on how to convince, how to write a convincing argument, like, yeah, watch some Shakespeare. I, I wouldn't recommend reading it. I do think it is supposed to be seen performed, but you can get uh, recordings of pretty much every single play he's done these days for fairly cheaply. I think you can get most of them on YouTube even. Like you don't even have to buy anything. So always go back to the bard, I say. But then you've got your Argentinian bias. I've got my British bias. So maybe that's the thing. Maybe I do need to expand a bit more into other into other schools. No, I feel like the more you read world literature as well, like um, from different countries, I think you realize, um, of course, there's always like um, some nuance and some cultural flavor. Um, but there's also like some, um, not I wouldn't say universals, but there are like some threats in storytelling around, around the world. And um, but yeah, I feel like particularly Kafka on the Shore, I read it like two, three years ago, and um, it's an amazing, amazing book i think also one thing i love from um murakami in general is like how he uses very simple language to express yes. yeah. very complex emotions um today we talk about emotions and i think usually most people when it comes to conveying emotions like they use very flowery language or like and i think like that's probably the worst way to convey emotions i think murakami is amazing um he conveys really complex emotions but using very simple language and yeah. i think it's, it's beautifully done yeah it, it's it, it's absolutely beautiful it's so elegant and yeah and even though it's just simple language but the way it's described the way it's used it's so impactful it's one it's one of the few times i've cried in public was reading norwegian wood i'm sat on the tube getting mm -hmm. my uh getting my commute to work and i was just weeping onto the pages all these people around me looking like are you okay like what's going on <laughs> but it shows how powerful emotions can be in stories like and um, and shows that is valuable to have when it comes to brand storytelling as well. Like not every single advert that you put out, not every single story you tell is to make people cry or laugh, but as to connect with some kind of emotion at the end of the day. Really? Well, I'm, I'm glad that you had a moment of catharsis. With, uh... <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so on that note, Gaston, we've had the catharsis. It's been an absolute pleasure doing the show with you. Um, I hope our audience has enjoyed it as much as I have um, because we're all storytellers and marketing. There's always ways to improve it. So thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you very much to our audience. Um, I'm not sure if we're going to be back with any new story masters anytime soon. I need to check with Gaston on that, but we'll be back soon with some more CMO combos. Like what you heard from this CMO combo? Make sure you hit that subscribe button and leave a rating so the whole world knows how great it was. 